It is Wednesday, December 13th, 2017, and this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, we speak with Democratic candidate Shannon Hader about her run for Congress in the 8th District. And then we talk with DACA recipient Montserrat Padilla to hear about her personal experiences as a dreamer and as a transgender woman. We also talk about her extensive work as an activist and about her fight to get a Clean Dream Act passed. All that, plus our Indivisible member profile. Shannon Hader is a Democrat who recently declared her candidacy for Congress in the 8th Congressional District, and she joins us on the show now. Shannon Hader, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here with you. Well, we're glad that you're with us. So I'd like to start by discussing your background and your professional plaudits uh, just a bit. You've had a very long career in public health, in the public and private sectors. Uh, You stepped down recently as the director of the Division of Global HIV and TB at the Center for Disease Control. You were a health policy fellow for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Uh, And previous to that, you were a senior deputy director at the Washington D.C. Department of Health for HIV and AIDS. You have an MD and a master's in public health from Columbia. You are a pediatrician. You are a public health expert. Uh, It's just, it's extraordinary. And I I do want to get to how all of that experience will translate into working in Congress. But first, tell us a little bit about your upbringing. You originally hail from Auburn, yes? Yeah, I am born and raised in the area, and I grew up in Auburn in my great-grandfather's old farm property and graduated from Auburn High School, and this is where my parents still live today. Well, so you were most recently at the CDC, as I mentioned, but you left your uh, post there in October of this year. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, So I had a pretty big job, as you mentioned, at the CDC this last time around. It was a a real privilege, actually. I had a team of 2,000 people across 45 countries managing a budget of about $2.4 billion a year. Uh, really spent saving lives and stopping epidemics for HIV and TB all over the world. So real privilege, real uh, great ability to impact people's lives. But as a federal employee, there is something called the Hatch Act, which precludes federal employees from running for partisan office, which it should, by the way. And so I had made a three-year commitment to CDC when I took that big job, and my three-year commitment was done the second week of October. And so I left the next pay period so that I could become a candidate for the Washington 8. So you specifically came back to Washington to run in the 8th? Yeah, you know, my professional career and my training has taken me all over the country and all over the world, including as a commission corps officer for the U.S. Public Health Service. I've been stationed in Atlanta and Zimbabwe and Washington, D.C. But, you know, wherever I've lived, Auburn has always been home. So, look, uh, before we begin here, I just want to mention that, as you are aware, there's very little available about your campaign online right now, um, and I am sure that that is forthcoming. Uh, But as a result, I I actually had a bit of a difficult time prepping for our interview today, Uh, but people are very interested in hearing from you. So I reached out to some Indivisible members and fielded some questions specifically from them. Uh, So I thought I'd just read the questions for you directly. So um, the first is, and it has to do with the size of the field, we are seeing a very crowded field of candidates on the Democratic side in the 8th District. So the first question is, why did you decide to jump into this race and why now? 
Yeah, well, I think the why now, I mentioned a little bit earlier, I needed to fulfill an obligation uh, to the federal government, and I did that. So right. for me, it's less of a surprise than probably it seems to folks on the outside. So this was the soonest I could jump in. And, you know, it's a year before the election, so it seems late in this race, but it's, it's you know, on an average year pretty good timing. Well, so you mentioned that you had to end your tenure at the CDC in order to run. So then at what point did you decide that you were going to do this? Yeah, you know, it has been a development over the year, really. I would say over the last year following the presidential election, I think that caused a lot of soul searching for me and a lot of soul searching for a lot of people. Yes. (laughs) Uh, I, you know, I wouldn't have seen myself as politician. That is definitely a new role. I'm uh, an outsider to politics as much as I'm an insider of how to get things done in government. Um, This is definitely a new role. And so for me to jump into this new role, I had to have a bunch of motivations really aligned to convince me and my friends and my family that this is the right thing to do. Um, For me, this is sort of, you know, your head and your gut and your heart all come together. And a few different sort of tracks that led me here. Uh, The first, and maybe this is more the head or the brain, is I think what a lot of people are saying is being very disturbed the direction our country is going, be it in healthcare or the environment or global diplomacy and security or tax breaks and opportunities for the middle class, it seems like we are going backwards when we need to be going forwards to create more opportunity. Uh, Second, you know, being inside the government during this past year, there is a lot that happens inside the government on how things are being run that are a lot less visible than just what you see in legislation or executive orders or transparent policies. There's a lot of ways inside the government to slow things down, to slow roll decisions, to block hiring of the critical staff you need to deliver on programs in ways that set up programs that we have here and now for failure and almost make it a fait accompli that they should be cut by blocking that success. And being an inside and seeing some of that start and feeling in my gut that things were going to get worse rather than better also helped convince me that this was a time that some of us, or particularly me, needed to step outside the government and be in a role where you can shine a light on those problems, uh, bring transparency, and really call for solutions so that we have success in the programs we're paying for. You know, since you mentioned your work at the CDC, I'll ask you, how do you see your work there as being applicable to the work that you might do as a member of Congress? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great question. And I think throughout my professional career, whether it's been domestic or global, whether it's been clinical or public health, whether it's been dealing with, you know, kids or adults, or whether it's been in government or as private sector working for government, I think my professional credibility and reputation is very much as a problem solver. I'm someone who throughout my professional life is known to be able to look at community voice or what the needs are and what people are saying and prioritizing um, to then bring to the table the data and the science and the evidence of what possible solutions might work and pull that together with common sense and creativity to really deliver solutions that give results in real time, measurable results that improve people li- people's lives. 
And I think that's a very non-generic way of, of solving problems. Yeah. Um, and when you look at a district, I think particularly like ours, like Auburn and the Washington Eight, we're a diverse district. We're a district where one size fits all for solutions is really not gonna cut it. And that approach to problem solving, that approach to being able to craft solutions and deliver results, and that approach to really believing in fiscal accountability and transparency and sort of wringing every dollar out of our tax uh, tax dollars, every ounce of value we can get because those tax dollars matter. That's what I think translates really effectively to help meeting the needs of our district right now. Okay. Another question from an Indivisible member asks if you are recruited to run and if so, by whom? Well, you know, I think I have to answer that a little bit, uh, a little bit differently. So as a federal employee, it would be really tough to be recruited to run because of that Hatch Act that precludes that direct engagement in partisan politics. I mean, somebody could have talked to you about it before you had resigned your post, though, correct? It could, but I couldn't have talked back very much. I could talk to friends and family. So this was much more of a internal assessment and talking to friends and family kind of decision. And we talked about two of the motivations, but the third motivation is really a lot more personal. And it relates to what we just talked about in terms of uh, you know, where do my skills and experiences come into play? And one of the, the third area, and this is really where my heart is, um, that has been something I've been really mulling over for this entire year since the last uh, presidential election is this widening division we see or we see being fanned between urban areas and everybody else. You know, and certainly Auburn and the Washington Eight, we would count as everybody else in that uh dialogue, the exurban to suburban to rural districts. And I think I find it particularly disturbing because the wider we're divided, the less partnership we have for actually crafting solutions. And I know it's possible to not just treat all areas like an average. And because if we're only looking at the average overall, that's where the big places with the most people like urban areas we have their problems at the forefront or their solutions at the forefront, which is great. We want strong urban areas, but we aren't necessarily then uncovering our needs, asking for our specific solutions and partnering on us how to solve them. So, you know, knowing in my professional experience that it's possible to really uncover the specific needs and specific solutions that are going to work, knowing in my heart that places like Auburn and the Washington 8 are suffering by this division narrative that's being promoted when we have a possibility of closing that division and getting solutions through partnerships, that was a big motivation for jumping into the race. Great. Well, it sounds like a, a bit of a personal mission then, just given the way that you framed the problem there. Well, I think, you know, people in this district work really hard. People work very hard. And, you know, life shouldn't be so hard for people who work hard every day. And I think there are things we can do that makes the quality of life and opportunities better for everybody here. So uh, another question from another member has to do with money. Uh, I'm sure that you are aware that uh, the other candidates in the field have a pretty substantial head start on you in terms of fundraising. Do you feel confident that you can make up that that gap at this point? Yeah, I do. So this is a learning experience, I think, for anyone who's a first-time candidate, and there's a lot of us first-time candidates in the race this year. 
and the learning experience is that fundraising matters and it's part of the job and you've got to sort of put your head down and make your phone calls and uh, make sure you get some money in the bank so that you can do the work that you need to do to uh, put out a good campaign and let people get to know you because people need to be able to get to know me so that they can trust me. So yeah, it's gonna be a lot of hard work, but I'm confident and I'm pretty determined. So yeah, we're gonna put the money in the bank that's gonna make a make me able to you know, run a good campaign. You've been out talking to voters then. I, I'm, I'm curious to know what you're hearing. What are, what are voters saying? Yeah, well, I'm hearing a lot of different things. You know, certainly a lot of what I hear about is anxiety over where we're going with healthcare coverage and insecurity and uncertainty about what things are going to look like in a year. And I think that concern is really well, you know, well-founded. We should be very concerned about moving backwards with healthcare coverage instead of putting in fixes and moving forward. Yeah. So that's an issue that comes up a lot. I'm sure it comes up a lot to me as a doctor because it, you know, comes to the front of people's minds. Um, in general, when I'm talking to folks in the area about what they want in this race, what they want from a candidate, but as importantly, what they want from a member of Congress once they're elected. And, you know, I hear a lot, they want someone who they can trust. They want someone who in this, you know, urgent time where so many things are going in the right direction can start to make a difference day one who knows how to get things done and knows how to deliver results. And I think they want someone who excites them, who makes them believe they should be demanding more and you know, can support our residents who are actually becoming incredibly active uh, from a grassroots level to set out demands for more and expect returns from their Congress congressperson. And indeed, you are talking to a number of those grassroots people right now through this podcast. So I want to shift over and talk about tax reform. This is, of course, on everybody's mind right now because the GOP is attempting to fast track their bill. Uh, I should mention for the sake of context that we are recording this on November 28th. And I will take it on faith that you don't support this current bill. There has been a real push among grassroots groups like Indivisible to pressure Democratic members of Congress to fight back against this bill. If you were in Congress right now, what sorts of things might you be doing or might you have done to try to keep this bill from becoming law? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely correct. I do not support this current bill. Um, and I, I hope very much that our Democratic representatives who are in Congress right now, and frankly, I hope some of our Republican representatives who want to do the right thing can band together and stall this and stop it from going forward. And so, you know, what would I be doing? Well, you know, I think you would see me raising a lot of the same issues that our Democratic representatives are raising, which is, you know, the principles that we do need tax reform, but we need tax reform that is going to really help improve the economics and the opportunities for our middle class and our lower middle class and make those opportunities easier to get and succeed. So, you know, what would I be doing and what would that look like? Um, you know, I think first is really being able to call out the things that on the surface sound like they're fair, but the reality is they're very aggressive and very unfair. You know, some of the approaches to across the board tax cuts or simplification that 
on the surface can sound, okay, well, that's equal. Well, it's not equal if it disproportionately affects those with the least money. And so being able to, you know, call out the regressive tax cuts, demonstrate why they're important and demonstrate, frankly, why people should be upset and not be letting their representatives, no matter who they are, get away with supporting this is number one. Um, I think second, I would be very much calling for the types of uh, tax interventions or tax credits that really help working family and seniors and, and the poor. So we know some of these things have been working very well. We know the child tax credits and the earned income tax credits have helped people. So not only would I want to preserve those, but I'd want to expand those. Um, I would want to make sure that some of the innovative approaches that are being put out there to help both small businesses and people um, are worked into the tax code. Um, you know, the idea of apprenticeship programs that give small businesses tax credits for training and hiring people, and that means they provide opportunities for people to be trained and hired. Um, that is not a roll the dice kind of thing, but it's a track to success. And I think third, I would want to put a lot of focus on making sure that we're, we're not eliminating or weakening, but rather strengthening some of the fair share measures. Um, there's been a lot of emphasis on getting rid of the estate tax, and I just don't think that's the way to go. Uh, I do think there should be some exceptions for farmers and for families that are land rich and cash poor so that they don't lose their family farms and, and small businesses because of that. But that's an exception. That's not where most of our state tax issues are. And it, we right. shouldn't be distracted by thinking they, they are there. Um, yeah. No, I think what we're really looking at is uh, what many people I think are fairly characterizing as a giveaway to this country's wealthiest families. Yeah, and I don't think we need that. You know, I think there's a lot of strategy that's also being sort of worked in to distract us from some of those really clear-cut issues. Um, well, and so that's that was sort of the first point that you brought up, which was uh, information. And I, I think that's a big part, and that was a big part of your job uh, in the CDC. Your, the CDC does is to disseminate information about what risks are, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think what we find in health and, you know, this is true throughout life a lot of ways is what we what we think we know or what we'd like to believe isn't actually working, isn't actually the whole truth. Right. And so part of this, you know, uncovering what's in the tax code, being able to separate the important stuff from the static and making sure we have profound and meaningful conversations across everybody on these issues so that these complicated but important issues get their full attention is a really important part of governing and it's a really important duty that I think our representatives should be taking on to get the best input from their constituency and get the action from the grassroots that are going to demand the kinds of, you know, the kinds of policies that we need. Well, you know, since we're talking about healthcare, and that really is your area of expertise, I, I would like to bring in the work that you did on behalf of global AIDS and HIV. You oversaw the number of people being treated go from, I believe, the five figures into the tens of millions. Is something like that applicable? in terms of what might be able to be accomplished here nationally with our health care, or, or are we talking apples and oranges? Well, 
there's a little bit that's applicable and there are some apples and oranges. So, you know, what is the applicable? I think, uh, and I'm going to sound, you know, very aspirational here, but aspirational is important. You know, when we talk about what we've seen in the global HIV fight over the last 15 years, um, we've seen going from, as you mentioned, about 40,000 people in the world on life-saving HIV treatment to uh, nearly 20 million will actually be above 20 million after December 1st comes and they release the new data. And, you know, that was what we talk about, you know, going from the impossible to the possible and driving the possible to results. So, you know, at the beginning of that time, we had some of our biggest experts in global development essentially saying HIV treatment in poor countries was impossible because, you know, gee, Africans can't tell Western time, so they can't possibly take pills on a consistent regimen. Just really biased, destructive concepts, but that kept people from imagining what was possible. So we turned that on its head and uh, really uh, accomplished things that were unimaginable. But how we did that has a lot of translation to things we need to consider in healthcare. Um, we continued to expand and, and multiply the number of people getting services with flat budgets. And part of how we did that was by continuously questioning the assumptions the model are in, looking at what the data showed now, um, stopping doing things that weren't helping our actual outcome of saving lives or stopping the epidemic, and then creating new solutions that would help us get efficient and quality outcomes, you know, going forward. And I think when we look at healthcare right now in this country and where we're at, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is healthcare coverage, which sure. is an important thing to talk about. Um, you probably know from the the bit you've heard about me so far that you know I believe healthcare is a right, and my focus is actually on getting better health outcomes. I want people to be healthier, you know. So healthcare coverage is part of that. It's not all of that, but it's a critical part of that. And so when we're looking at healthcare coverage now and where we're at with the ACA and where we need to go, you know, we're better off than we were a few years ago, but we've got a long ways to go and there are things that can be fixed to keep us moving forward. What sorts of things, how would you approach that problem? Yeah, so, you know, I start by looking at where do we wanna land, you know, and I truly believe we wanna land with uh, everybody having affordable, access to high quality health care that helps them have a better uh, health outcome. And so I'm a little bit agnostic about the principles of how we get there. And I'm very focused on given where we're at now, how do we get to that end point? So what some of the priorities I see are uh, just fixing things or accelerating parts of healthcare reform that will help get us there. So, you know, let's provide the opportunity to lower the age for Medicare eligibility and make more and allow more people to opt in. Uh, by doing that, we should reduce some of the premium rates of folks that are left in the exchanges in the, and in the overall market. And frankly, that will help to alleviate some of the challenges we're seeing right now. I also think we need to sort of have this combination of accelerating our payment reforms so that we are saving money and we're incentivizing better health, not just more procedures. 
we need to go ahead and move forward with many of the great innovations that different states, including Washington State um, and other communities, have evaluated and shown that have worked through special programs and we need to put them on the agenda for things that we include in healthcare now or strategies for that reform. And then with all of that, we need to modernize our, our fraud response so that we're recapturing money that uh, can help pay for more of this expansion that we still need to see. You know, one of the issues that came up at a candidate forum that you spoke at in Carnation recently was net neutrality. Uh, and this is another issue that's very much on people's minds right now. And I'm wondering how, given your uh, experience working with an organization like the CDC, uh, how would you work at preventing a body that works with very little oversight, like the FCC, from basically imposing its will on a very consequential issue like net neutrality. Uh, a lot of people are feeling very helpless watching this happen. Uh, how would you push back? Yeah, you know, I think the whole toolkit for a congresswoman is a lot broader than sometimes what we talk about. And, you know, it does include issues like legislation and what's the legislative fix that's going to uh, protect net neutrality net neutrality. But it's more than that too, right? It also has to do with oversight, oversight of our different um, uh, agencies and committees, and it has to do with the power of the purse strings and budget oversight, but it also has to do with convening power and making sure to give a voice uh, and give coverage to folks who object to what's happening. And so Net neutrality, I think, is a core principle to what we were talking about earlier. We need folks to have access to information, to not be limited in their access to information, and we need that access to information and use to, frankly, not be divided by income. That has to be a universal, uh, consistent access that we're promoting here. So it is disturbing to see the movement against that right now, and I think we need to bring all of our tools to bear to make sure that we preserve net neutrality. You know, another issue that came up at the candidate forum was gun safety. And that is something that continues to come up with every tragic mass shooting that we see in this country. And I'm wondering how you look at this issue, given your work. Do we treat it like a public health issue, as many have suggested? So I absolutely do look at gun violence and prevention of gun violence as a public health issue. And I probably should start by saying that my experience, which I think I share with a lot of folks in Washington, in Washington, is that, you know, I have members in my family who uh, feed themselves, put their food on the table uh, using hunting. Um, my niece and her husband, probably most of the meat in their freezer is from what they hunt themselves, and they run an outfitting uh, guide organization, and he's a professional hunting fishing guide. So, you know, that is very different than what we're talking about in terms of a public health response to gun violence. And the reason I take a public health point of view to gun violence is because I want us to talk about the whole spectrum of issues and craft the right solutions. And so what are we talking about? We're talking about certainly the gun violence that gets the most attention, which are these mass shootings or murders and assaults and things like that. But sometimes we're not also talking about the other elements that are also very important. And that includes accidents because of guns, and that also includes suicide. 
And, you know, we have more deaths by suicide by guns than we do for the rest of the gun violence combined. Right. So, you know, that's a big deal. And there have been barriers to figuring out what some of the solutions should be. So, you know, public health problems um, and public health solutions, you have to figure out what's really going on and what's going to work to change things because what we wish would work or what we think might work might not actually make a difference. And so how we deal with this in other public health issues is we do a lot of research. We ask questions, we look at the data, and we try to figure out what interventions are going to make a difference. Now, for gun violence, this has been nearly stopped for the last couple of decades. Um, early, I think, in the 90s, there was some legislation put forward from Congress, which didn't quite prohibit CDC, but pretty much sent the message that CDC should not be doing research on gun violence prevention any longer. Um, that's certainly how it was interpreted, and it had a major chilling effect on the entire field of gun violence prevention. Now, what it means is we're left with our nation's public health agency, the CDC, and frankly, a lot of research institutes across the country not having experts who can actually take a good look at how to measure these things and how to look for solutions. So I think one of the things we need to do as we frame or reframe gun violence as a comprehensive public health issue is make sure that we are demanding that we start to look at evidence-based solutions and figure out what might, look, might work and what isn't going to work so that we have a grounding for what we're going to do next. Okay. Before we go, I'd like to briefly touch on women's issues. You are one of three women running for office in the 8th District. And anybody who's been paying even mild attention to the news over the last couple of months has seen women empowered to come forward on the record calling out men in power for sexual abuse, uh, men from Harvey Weinstein to Louis C.K. to Roy Moore to many others. It does feel like we're having a watershed moment, that something has shifted in our culture. And I'm wondering if you see it that way. And if so, what do you attribute that to? Yeah, you know, I think this is a very important time, and I hope it turns out to be a very powerful time. Um, you notice I can't say that I'm happy or glad that all this is coming out because I think it's coming out, you know, too little too late. Everything that's coming out is representing someone who has either suffered from it or been bothered for or been affected by it for a really long time, yeah. for years, if not decades. So that's not something to celebrate, that it's just coming out now. But, you know, in this idea of a watershed moment, I think that it's very important. It's very different. And, you know, what seems to be the most different is that people want to listen. People somehow at this moment are willing to hear it. And I hope that this builds to, you know, the point where we're actually going to say, yeah, we're going to have a new normal going forward where this is not okay. And I'm hoping that some of the, you know, some of the systems that have been set up to look at these kind of issues, but have not been doing it in the past, including things like the ethics committee in Congress. Um, are going to turn over a page and have a new normal. I am eagerly awaiting 
what's going to happen and what findings they're going to have and how how they're going to act on some of these, particularly the the accusations that are happening in Congress. But I hope more broadly that this important time becomes a powerful time for setting really a new set of expectations going forward. And I do think that having more women in Congress is going to be a very important part of translating this important watershed moment to a powerful future. So if people are liking what they're hearing, uh, how can they volunteer, uh, donate, get involved? As, as I mentioned, it's still early in your campaign. And so uh, as of right now, I don't have a website to post up. Is there some place that people can go to get more information on you? Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to have a hard launch where we're publicizing more of this um, sometime after the holidays, you know, once we have people's attention back on. Right now, you can go to, well, this is a URL that people can go to uh, even after the launch. It will build out further as we go. It's www.drshannonforcongress.com. So that's dr. S-H-A-N-N-O-N-F-O-R-Congress.com. Great. Well, Shannon Hader, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Well, you know, thank you and thank Indivisible for really creating this opportunity for people to start to get to know the candidates. I think that this is a really important service that you're providing for people. So thanks for letting me be part of it. Montserrat Padilla is a DACA recipient and an activist living here in Washington, and she joins us now to talk about her experiences as well as the current fight in Congress to pass the DREAM Act. Montserrat, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on uh, tonight's segment. Um, very honored to be here. We're talking to all the Indivisible members um, and figuring out how our collective movement can uh, strategize and organize to win a DREAM Act by this December. Good. Okay. That's absolutely what I want to talk about. And I also want to talk about some of the work that you are doing on behalf of uh, the immigrant LGBT community. But first, I'd like to just briefly discuss your background a little bit. Uh, When did you first come to the United States? How old were you? I came to the United States uh, at the age of two. I was born in Guadalajara, Jalisco, Mexico. Um, And I actually, uh, my family moved to Los Angeles, California, where most of my life I lived there. Um, Went to middle school. Uh, and kind of got to see the experience of what it what it meant to be undocumented and living in in the U.S. Um, my mother worked at a sweatshop for ten years of her life, um, and uh, you know we pretty much me and my siblings took care of each other during the times of uh, of need, especially if um, there was an at any moment any encounters with um, authority figures. Um, it was always you know, our family that protected each other from ever being caught up in the loopholes of immigration. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit about me growing up here in the country. And so like many dreamers, you don't really have any memories of your uh, country of origin of, of Mexico. Your whole life has been here in the United States. Yes. Uh, most of my life, I, I actually have lived all of my life here. Um, the memories that I have from Mexico is every time I would have a phone call with my grandparents uh, for the holidays um, or calling my uncles and aunts and cousins who my family from my mother's side is a very large family. It's a family of, I believe, 12 children. Um, and so I have a lot of cousins in Mexico. Um, so my what I what I have memory of of Mexico is those to- those moments I would have those calls with 
family members and get to share those experiences. And so at what point did you come up to Washington State? I moved to uh, Seattle, Washington at the age of 15. Um, my parents were divorced. Uh, so I would spend the summers here in Seattle um, while my mother would you know, be able to focus a little bit more on her work or have to travel either back to uh, Mexico for family needs um, or different things. But um, I moved to Seattle at the age of 15 when my mom had to return back to Mexico um, after a family member passed away. And she had to make that difficult choice that a lot of families often have to do uh, when a family member passes away and we are faced with a difficult choice of having to either go back um, to address the family need or, you know, unfortunately not be there for our families. Um, and my mom made the choice um, uh, to go back to Mexico. So I came Have to you seen her since? I got the opportunity to see her in 2013 um, over a uh, the Nogales border fence. Um, mm-hmm. She was able to come to the border while I also was able to travel. Thanks to the, uh, thanks to DACA, um, I was able to get close enough to the border um, and see her for the first time after five long years. Um, since then, I have not seen her, but um, you know, I think that that moment kind of really gave me a lot of energy to continue hoping that some form of legislative uh, or sorry, congressional solution would come forward. Um, but it's been quite a, quite a minute since then. So yeah. um, I think for what inspires me is, to, uh, is her. To, that's why I continue to organize so that one day there won't be a, a border fence in between us. Well, I, I think that that's what everybody listening wants as well. Um, you are a transgender woman, and you've said in interviews that you've had to come out three times, uh, first as undocumented, <laughs> then as a queer man, and then as transgender, all of which took just enormous amounts of courage, maybe more than most people have. If you can, talk about coming out as queer and transgender when you're part of uh, the undocumented community. I think that coming out as queer and transgender in the undocumented community comes with a lot of um, current stigmas of what does it mean to be queer, what does it mean to be transgender, uh, and a lot of um, uh, potential um, push out. And I think that that's a lot of the fear from the LGBT community that um, that oftentimes um, our immigrant community has not been um, Given the opportunity to have the uh, the you know the information of LGBTQ families and individuals, so um, our communities stay in the on uh, the on the not knowing how to you know connect LGBTQ folks to their broader you know efforts or um, um, or like uh, activities, for example, family activities, you know. How do you engage uh, your queer child in a, in, a, in a way that it would really um, bring them all together uh, to the space? And I think uh, one of the things that I was I, I was struggling while coming out um, was um, being able to come out and being more than just that queer person, being more than just the trans person, but being a person as a whole um, in my community. And I think. Um, the challenge was just being able to to understand that time um, will help educate myself and my community uh, to continue having a good, uh, healthy relationship uh, together. 
You've also said that your fight to stay here in the United States is potentially a matter of life and death because of the prevalence of hate crimes in your in, in Mexico. I know that you now work as an activist on behalf of undocumented members of the LGBT community, many of whom have come from Mexico. What did they say about what life is like there for LGBT individuals? Um, so there's over 80 countries around the world that continue to criminalize um, LGBTQ individuals for their being um, in many more countries that don't um, have the uh, state required um, protections for folks who, you know, are part of this community. Um, I've heard countless stories of trans women being, um, you know, beat up in the street for being who, who they are, um, for not being able to uh, express themselves authentically. Many of them who have been outcasted from their families for simply living their truth. And I think, um, you know, the biggest fear um the biggest fear that uh, has always crossed my mind um, has never really been about myself. It has always been about my mother and my family, who is a very strong um, united family, uh, and having to face those challenges because of me, right? I think that um, um, it's a fear that I have for myself, but it's a a broader fear that I have for my family of being targeted um, for the simple fact that they have a transgender child. And I think that that is... Um, something that many of us who decide to live ourselves um, in our most authentic authentic form have to struggle with because our choices come, at, you know, are not individual. They impact all of our community. They impact our families. Um, so for me, uh, hearing those stories um, ground me on why my work is important and why we must continue organizing at the intersections of, of our communities, um, whether it's LGBTQ or immigrant or being a woman and an immigrant um, it is important to highlight those uh, those hardships at the intersections. Absolutely. Um, and I, I want to talk about your work as an activist. Uh, you were actually working on behalf of Dreamers before you became one yourself. Um, I'm wondering, when you applied for and became a DACA recipient, um, in order to do that, you had to register as undocumented with the government and, and basically give up all of your personal information with the knowledge that it may at some point be used against you. How did you and your family weigh that decision? I think um, there wasn't many options. I think that that's one of the things that, you know, oftentimes people talk about choices um, and there wasn't any other choice but to, um, to believe in a system that... Um, you know, that had no other way to um, to legalize and apply so that our families can have some form of certainty. Um, so for me, being able to know that an administration um, was in, consist- in consistent communication with its community was what gave, gave me the, the sense of tranquility to uh, be able to apply. Um, uh, during the Obama administration, they had consistent communication with national uh, uh, immigrant rights organizations um, and where the immigrant rights organizations vouch for the program um, in a way that created some form of credibility in our communities. So um, during 2012, when the uh, the first uh, when the announcement announcement was made and the application began, um, the uncertainty was uh, was something that you know really put our communities in a moment of choice whether do we we believe to to trust in a program. Um, that can potentially, you know, um, uh, you know, in the future, uh, hunt us down, or do we 
um, continue living our lives um, unapologetically unafraid and um, try to, you know, exemplify the good work that we've been doing um, as best as we can. So um, I think over 800,000 immigrant youth, uh, you know, chose the route of exemplifying the good work that we've been carrying throughout years um, and uh, applied for DACA. So, Yeah, I mean, the irony, of course, is that in order to be a DACA recipient, you have to be a model citizen, which is, of course, what you are. And uh, the fact that the government has considered it all turning away people who are such model citizens is is mind-boggling to most people. Um, so as I mentioned, you have been working as an activist on behalf of undocumented members of the LGBTQ community. Uh, you also worked for United We Dream in Washington, D.C. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, so um, in during my time at United We Dream, I was the national coordinator for the Queer and Documented Immigrant Project. Um, and the, uh, my work consisted of being able to create bridges between the broader LGBTQ and immigrant rights movements um, through organizing opportunities, um, uh, you know, conducting research and reports uh, in ways that um, both communities, uh, you know, shared struggles, but also um, needs um, and and ways of wanting to organize in their community. So um, I would work with uh, the Human Rights Campaign, with the National LGBTQ Task Force um, to be able to uh, provide, uh, provide leadership opportunities for those impacted by um, our immigration system that were also LGBTQ. Um, and slowly was able to develop a statewide network of LGBTQ immigrants um, that were ready to ready to take on the, those roles of leadership um, that oftentimes they couldn't see themselves because nobody else had really set that opportunity for them. Right. So, yeah, I think that most of my organizing um, has consisted of being able to see um, bridge the gap um, between the broader LGBTQ and immigrant communities um, that uh, siloed um, folks who are now working at the intersections can't really bridge the gap towards. And you've been recognized for that uh, in in your work. I I should mention that you are most recently being honored by the Seattle-based Gender Justice League for their uh, 2017 Zeitgeist Award. Uh, Congratulations for that. Uh, That's for your leadership in trans justice and immigration justice. As you say, there's that intersection there. You've also been named one of 13 LGBT Latinos to watch by The Advocate. You received the ACLU Washington Youth uh, Activist Award in 2013. Um, again, as I said, you're you're a model citizen and you are doing extraordinary work. I'm wondering, given the political climate right now, um, how do you feel about your relatively high profile with all of that? You, do you feel it's a liability or conversely, do you feel that that helps keep you safe? How do you see it? I think that um, when we talk about when I've carried my work, I've never carried my work in a way that exemplifies my model um, performance, right? I think that um, every time that I've carried on my work has always been to prove um, to my own community that we are able to accomplish whatever we um, we can dream of. And I think um, while growing up, uh, there was always many obstacles uh, where people would say that we weren't allowed to do certain things, that we weren't allowed to run for ASB, you know, class presidents, that we right. weren't allowed to run for um, being political, you know, spaces. Um, so for me, my activism has always come at a 
uh, from a place of, of, of challenging the system and wanting to show my community that wherever they come from, whoever they are, that they can achieve whatever they want. Um, so my, my, that's how I've been able, always been able to carry my community in every space that I come, um, being able to ground myself, you know, that that's where I come from. And the profiling of my, um, you know, my activism, I think that it has helped, um, it has helped in a way that other people um, in my community can see themselves doing those type of things. Um, I think that in terms of the current political times, uh, it comes with the, I think at this point there's, there's this, there's this hesitation of like, if my activism will make me a higher target or a less of a target. And I think that, right. um, you know, the, I think for me, my answer is I'm not sure, but I think, um, at any given moment, um, I have my community I can trust in um, to work with me um, to address any challenge that I might be going through. So whether that's ICE coming to my to my house, knocking down, um, I know I can count on my community to be right there um, to fight back. As we know, there has been a push to pass what is being called a Clean Dream Act as part of a continuing budget, budget resolution in Congress. Um, in the last vote, both of our senators declined to include it uh, and voted for the continuing resolution in spite of that, which upset a lot of people in the progressive uh, community, particularly advocates for, uh, the, uh, for the Dreamers. Have you been in contact with their offices? I personally have not been in contact with their office, but I know um, our members from the Washington Dream Coalition, um, who are a partner of the Washington Immigrant Solidarity Network, as well as other uh, uh, partner organizations have. Do you know what and they've I, said in response, the, the senator's offices? Um, I, you know, I think for them, they're in negotiation phases um, where they've extended the budget uh, until the 22nd. Um, and during this current times is when um, they are discussing uh, just essentially pieces of the legislation that they would like to get passed um, in a bipartisan solution. So um, we've been hearing what I've been hearing from Republican members is that that this has been this is one of their top priorities to address um, a solution, regardless of their leadership, um, because as we've heard, Paul Ryan and um, and Mitch McConnell. I believe that's how uh, Mitch McConnell. Yeah. yeah Mitch McConnell. Um, they've said that there's no, no sense of urgency to pass the DREAM Act, but um, our current leadership from Washington State, I know that Congressman uh, Newhouse has made it um, something that is important for his constituency to address. Um, and also uh, Dave Riker has talked about how this is what's going to keep him all the way until the 22nd. Um, discussing negotiation um, platforms for his party and for the Democratic Party to address. So um, I think for me, um, when the Democrats, um, you know, provide a, 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 an opportunity for Republicans to um, to not have to do their work, it's it's um, it sends our community a message of of, of complacency. So um, you know, I think for Senator Patty Murray and Senator and Senator Maria Campbell, it is important that they continue to trust in the leadership of the community. Um, and when we ask them to, you know, to add add pressure to the Republicans to do it in a strategic way, the way that um, it's organized through a national a national lens. 
You know, you also uh, have met with Governor Inslee. You were alongside Attorney General Bob Ferguson when he announced that he was filing suit against the Trump administration on behalf of Dreamers. Have you been in touch with either the governor or the attorney general since then? Um, we have. I have not, but I know that um, the briefings for the courts have uh, are in schedule. Um, one of our uh, the church council, great. The church council um, is currently working on a religious um, uh, briefing for the court, um, and is talking about how faith is um, uh, impacted um, because of the DACA resigning. So I know that um, the courts are going to take years to address um, uh, a permanent solution. Mm. Uh, but uh, I know that both Bob Ferguson. Um, and Governor Jay Inslee um, are working tirelessly not only on ways to um, prevent uh, Donald Trump's executive orders to take effect in our community, but also uh, taking a, um, um, you know, a progressive progressive steps in our state to protect our communities. Um, whether they're developing a a state um, a state based website that allows to allocate resources for our community, or figuring out different ways that they can. Um, respond to ICE activity. It does seem that it, at least in the short term, in terms of the DREAM Act, that probably where the, the most expedient action will happen is in Congress. And so I know that a lot of people are working to put uh, a tremendous amount of pressure on our elected officials. There's a real urgency to the fight. In addition to doing that, is there anything that, else that you would encourage people listening right now to do on behalf of DREAMers? Yeah, I think at this moment, it's really the time of like um, the do or die moment, right, where uh, we have about tw- 10 more days left um, until the last day of negotiations. Um, and this is really the moment where taking the streets is critical, where um, uh, holding your signs of support for the DREAM Act um, is important, where having those calls made to to the offices of, the, of our Congress members um, is important because... Um, oftentimes we, we are mobilized into action, especially here in Washington state without a real potential tangible, uh, win. And in this moment, our tangible win is the dream act. Um, Mm -hmm. and inaction is only complacency of not passing the dream act. So for us in the next couple of days, um, it will be very important for all of our community to, to double down on their efforts on phone banks, on sending emails to their Congress member, on actually going to visit him, um, visit them, sorry, um, literally just standing there in their office until they pass the DREAM Act. I remember in 2014 when we were pushing for the the Washington State DREAM Act, I remember just, you know, there was a day where the vote was going to come on the DREAM Act, and I just sat down in the offices uh, of our congressional representatives, sorry, of our state representatives, um, and they will ask me why was I why was I there, and I would just say that I was there to secure a vote for the Dream Act. Um, so um, I urge all of our allies, all the folks who are not undocumented, to 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 spend that time because it would really mean it really means the future of thousands of people um, in our state. And what personally will you be doing over the next uh, few days? In the next couple of days, we are organizing calls with other immigrant youth across the state um, to be able to support their leadership in organizing actions, banner drops, phone banks. Um, we're also organizing the launch of our 2018 um, policy platforms that will advance the rights and dignity of our immigrant community um, in a way that would be uh, we can win here in the state um, 
by pressuring our state legislature. So um, there's federal policies that we can win, and there's also state policies that we can win and local policies that we can win. So we have an entire plan um, to address all three of them um, that will continue to protect our community. Well, I, I think I can speak on behalf of everybody listening. Uh, I, I'm incredibly inspired by the work that you do. So, Montserrat Padilla, thank you so much for everything you're doing, and thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you so much, Stefan, for the moment and the time to be here. Thank you. And we will end this week with our Indivisible member profile. I became active with Indivisible after the election, and my friends and I were all stunned and searching for something to do. And then in January, Move On and Indivisible had a a conference call for activists, and I was on that. And they called for us to uh, start Indivisible grassroots groups. They said 10 people are at the max, people who would be willing to work hard and form their own groups as grassroots organizations work. And also to go to Resist Trump Tuesdays, every Tuesday to your senators uh, or congressmen's offices. So I did, I took it literally. I started a small group. I think we have a hundred members now, but it's national. And I also started going faithfully every week to Resist Trump Tuesday, the first time I brought six people with me. And after that, sometimes it was just me till finally, finally the senators acquiesced and agreed to meet with us every week. There were weeks that we put letters under closed doors because they were in staff meetings, letters with our concerns. So finally they've opened the doors. They meet with us every week and it's a wonderful thing to do. It's hard to resist in a blue state when we have wonderful senators and congressmen. But perseverance is the key. We've gone every week. We have continued to persevere and fight, and we will continue fighting until this evil man is no longer the president of our wonderful country. I'm Tula Holmes, and that is why I am part of Indivisible. And that'll do it for this week's show. If you would like to learn more about the show, do head over to indivisiblepodcast.org and subscribe while you're there. As always, please keep the emails coming. The email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. And on Twitter, where you will find me being just so clever, the handle is indivisiblepod. The executive producer is Aaron Albanese. Thanks again to my guests, Shannon Hader and Montserrat Padilla. And thanks, as always, to you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye.